All right, I invite you for Mike to turn with me to Exodus uh, 27. We're up to Exodus 27. Looking tonight at the bronze altar, the altar of burnt offering within the tabernacle complex or arena or area. And before we uh, read this rather short description of the construction of the altar, let's uh, pray together and uh, then we'll read and consider it. Our Heavenly Father, this altar is uh, such a great teaching tool, not just for the Israelites, but for us. In the New Covenant, we have seen greater things than this, but what a delight to see the beginning, the ABCs, where you began to teach us, your people, about what kind of God you are and how we can have fellowship with you and approach you and have a relationship and enjoy eternal life. And so as we take a look at not just the ABCs here, but also extended into the new covenant, we ask that you would go with our time, go with us in this time, encourage our hearts, sanctify us, draw us to you. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, Exodus 27 and verse 1, you shall Make the altar of acacia wood five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze, and on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the ring so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards, as it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives this evening. So beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here uh, tonight, the arrangement of the tabernacle complex, the whole court and the holy place and most holy place is instructive for us in uh, many ways. And just as a bit of a recap, we've seen already, beginning in Exodus 25, a few of the items. Uh, we began with the Ark of the Covenant in Exodus 25. It's the place of greatest fellowship with God. It's a place that in the Old Covenant, only one person once a year could get into and only with blood, but it's where God dwelt right above the mercy seat. The table of bread teaches us that in the presence of God is this incredible fellowship with him that just satisfies the soul, that feeds the soul and the golden lampstand in the holy place communicates that our God is indeed a God of light, a God of light and life, a God who shines in the midst of the darkness and provides us light. So the inside of the tabernacle is indeed the place where if you're a child of God, you wanted to be, ideally, you wanted to be in there, which is why the psalmist, all throughout the Psalms, sing things that make it sound like they actually want to be in there. It's because they do. Psalm 27, 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Psalm 43, 4. I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God my God. 
Psalm 63, 1-2, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So, because the psalmist's soul thirsts for God, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. And maybe the most famous one out of the psalm, Psalm 84, 1-2, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. This was the desire of old covenant Christians. It's the desire of new covenant believers. Well, old covenant Christians, old covenant believers and new covenant Christians or believers. We want to dwell with God, have fellowship with God through Jesus Christ, to enjoy and live in that most intimate of fellowship and friendship uh, with God. But the question remains, how do we get in? And the very layout of the tabernacle and the very placement of the altar itself will teach us indeed how do we get into this fellowship? So I want us to look at the bronze altar under three headings, the altar itself, secondly, the work of the altar, and then finally, the place of the altar. So the altar itself, the work of the altar, and the place of the altar. So beginning with the altar itself, I'm just gonna walk you through Exodus 27 really quickly. The construction is fairly straightforward. Uh, the name of the altar throughout scripture, uh, it can be called the altar of burnt offerings, the altar of God, or the altar of the Lord. Its size is roughly seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet, so it's square, and it sits about four and a half feet tall. It is good size. It's actually the biggest of all the furniture that is in the tabernacle area. Its shape is indeed a square, but at each corner, there's a horn on it at each corner. And we know that these horns were used to tie up animals and hold those animals while they awaited sacrifice. Psalm 118, 27, bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar, so one of the uses for the horns was that it would just hold the animals there while they awaited being slaughtered. The horns were interestingly, <laughs> it would be interesting to study this further, almost like a city of refuge um, where you could flee to and grab onto the altar. One example of this is in 1 Kings 1.50, Adonijah feared Solomon, so he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. Rather than being killed by Solomon, I'm going to run and grab hold of those horns. It's like a place of refuge or a place where God says, this is home base. Uh, hands off for the person who's grabbed a hold of them, who's grabbed a hold of the horns. The materials of the bronze altar, verses one and two, acacia wood overlaid with bronze. Now this is different. Inside the tabernacle itself, in the most holy place and the holy place, everything is made of what? Gold. Now we're getting outside of there, farther away from the presence of God, and we see even silver on the outskirts of the wall, and we see bronze here at the altar. We're farther away from God, the material is bronze, uh, signifying that indeed you're not there yet. This is bronze, not gold, not the very presence of the king. There are utensils, verse three, pots for collecting ashes, shovels for scooping out the ashes, basins for collecting blood, forks for flipping and managing the sacrificial items burned on the altar, Fire pans. These would actually hold the live coals when the Israelites transported from place to place. Uh, the, the structure, verses four to five, there was a, a, a bronze net or grate that was inside the altar, which made the altar look like a big square grill, I guess. Think of a Weber charcoal grill. I don't know how else to describe it. Um, your ESV study Bible, if you have one of those, has a great visual of it, what that would look like. And then there were uh, rings on the side of the altar, again, similar to the Ark of the Covenant and the Table of the Presence. 
that through which poles that were made of acacia wood and covered in bronze were slid, and the altar was picked up then when it was time for Israel to uh, find a new place to set up camp. The bronze altar does some heavy lifting. If you want to think of the whole uh, tabernacle complex, we might call the holy place and the most holy place the inside of the Rolls Royce. Think of this as a Rolls Royce, okay? A beautiful car. I'm sure there's better cars. I've never been in one, but I've heard it's amazing. And if you sit inside of a Rolls Royce, you're sitting in luxury. It's incredible. Gold trim. I'm sure the plushest of leather. Every detail handcrafted. It's gorgeous and beautiful. That is the holy place and the most holy place. But the altar is like the engine compartment. It's where all the work happens. It's what makes everything go. It's not gorgeous. It's not beautiful. It's made of bronze. It can withstand heat. And it's where we see a lot of the ugly things that need to take place in order for us to have fellowship with God happen on a regular basis. It's the place where the noise, the heat, the blood, the guts, the hinds, the carcasses are, are divided up. They're sprinkled. They're placed on the altar. It's a dirty business, a messy business. It's not for the faint of heart. You come there as a sinner. Something you bring dies. The blood is sprinkled. Parts of it are burned. Parts of it are brought outside the camp. Wash, rinse, repeat, oftentimes all day long, and sometimes by the tens or even hundreds of thousands, literally millions of animals would have been sacrificed on not just this original altar, but the altars that the people of Israel made. Something else about the altar that's interesting, Leviticus 6.13, it's always lit. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out, which is an instruction that God gave to his people. So it was like a perpetually burning stove ready to offer sacrifices all night and all day for the sins of God's people. It wasn't a beautiful place, wasn't a pretty place, but it was a place where the work got done, where the priests were busy. If you were a priest, you would be bloody. You would be covered in animal stuff from head to toe. That was your job as you worked these things out. Now, we walk into the new covenant and we understand uh, the importance of this. The cross is a place where God did the heavy lifting and our salvation, and it wasn't a pretty place either. It was a place where difficult, ugly, humiliating work was performed. You know, heaven's sort of like the, the sexy part of Christianity, the part that catches a lot of people's attention. Who doesn't like to read of streets paved with gold, the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne? The new Jerusalem is pure gold like clear glass. Catch this, the foundations of the city wall, not the wall itself, but even the foundations were adorned with all sorts of jewels. It's a place where there's no more mourning or crying or pain or death. It's incredible. But heaven doesn't come and we don't fellowship with God there unless Jesus Christ takes up the dirty work of the cross, the humble, lowly work of associating with sinners like you and me and becoming sin with all the attendant shame and ugliness and lowliness that the work of the cross entailed. Well, secondly, I want us to look not just at the altar, but at the work of the altar. This is where priests offered the sacrifices. So again, if you walked in there, you would have uh, smelled the smells. <laughs> if you've ever been to a slaughterhouse or slaughtered animals, you'd have smelled the smells and also seen the sights. It was a place of constant death and dying. When you walked by the altar and came into the outer court, you were confronted with this altar 
and you were confronted with a lot of death. Now, if you were an Israelite who understood what was going on, you would have concluded at least one thing about uh, God. Atoning for sins is hard work. It's dirty work. It's loud and noisy and public work. Atoning for sins so we can have a relationship with God or God can have a relationship with us is hard, messy, dirty public work that is right out there in front for all to see. It's really the first thing you encounter when you walk in. Animals making noise, animals uh, throats being slit, blood drained into pans and then sprinkled. Uh, this was just all part of the normal uh, routine of a priest. And this is the place where one's sins were dealt with. Now, if you turn to Leviticus 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, there are quite a few details about the five different offerings that were offered on this altar. There's the burnt offering, Leviticus 1, the grain offering, Leviticus 2, the peace offering, Leviticus 3, the sin offering, Leviticus 4, and the guilt offering, Leviticus 5. The grain offering is the only one that's bloodless. All the rest of them involve a sacrificial animal. And what is being taught the Israelites is that to approach God, sins must be dealt with. All sorts of sins must be dealt with. And how are sins dealt with? By sacrifice. Blood must be shed for sin. God gave the life and the blood for atonement, Leviticus 17. So if you, we want to receive forgiveness, then blood has to be shed in order for sins to be atoned for. It's a very simple lesson. Now you can imagine the surprise of those people who were standing by the Jordan River then while God had been silent for about 400 years and there showed up this guy dressed in camel's hair and eating locusts and wild honey and he said out of the clear blue in a way no one could mistake it, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now you're an Israelite. You're a Pharisee, you're a scribe, you're a Jewish religious leader. And you hear this guy, this prophet in the wilderness, say that we finally got a lamb who takes away the sin of the world and you point to a person. That is radical. And that's exactly what John the Baptist did. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ himself came to do. He came to be the sacrifice the one laid on the altar who provides the atoning blood, which is shed so our sins could be forgiven. And if you were the disciples again, uh, Jews who knew the Old Testament well, and you sat in the upper room on that Thursday night, and you heard Jesus say that this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins your eyeballs may have fallen out of their sockets. <laughs> your ears may have fallen off the side of your head. What did he just say? His blood is the blood, the sacrificial blood that's now going to forgive our sins. Whoa. Okay, this really is the Lamb of God. Now I want to consider just a few things regarding the work of the altar. Number one, the bronze altar was a wake-up call to those possessing a low view of sin. A.W. Pink said it was at the brazen altar that the holiness and righteousness of God were displayed. His hatred of sin and his justice in punishing it. God hates sin. God justly punishes sin. God has a perfect, infinite hatred of sin, beloved. He's going to punish every single sin 
and the punishment is some ugly, sobering work. If you're a believer, and for believers all over the world who have lived, live, or will live, then Jesus was punished for our sins. But make no mistake that all of our sins were indeed punished in him. They were punished. He felt it. He paid for it. He was punished for every single thing that we have done to disobey God's laws. And those who die in unbelief will be punished for every single one of their sins. God takes sin seriously. God will punish every single sin. So those who die outside of Christ, they will know indeed what kind of sins they committed, and they will be forced to be punished for them at the hands of the just wrath of God. And so this altar communicates to all the Israelites and to us that no one should think sin is a small deal. God made his only begotten son an object of his wrath in order to pay for our sins, beloved. If ever God was going to say, yeah, I take sin seriously, but not that seriously, then when Jesus was on the cross, he would have said, I, I can't do it. But with his Son whom he loves, the object of his infinite love, his eternal love, is on the cross. God actually, Jesus having become sin and become a curse for us, God makes him pay for our sins. That's how seriously God takes sin and takes the satisfaction of his justice. Indeed, the God of the New Testament is a God of love and mercy and grace, and he's also a God of holiness and righteousness and justice and vengeance. He's the same God as he was in the Old Covenant. He's the same God in the new covenant. And the cross proves that indeed he's a God of righteousness, holiness, and strict justice. So first, the altar teaches us that sin, God takes sin seriously. It teaches us secondly, that confession of sin is part of the Christian life. Now, this isn't for everybody. It is for everyone in one sense, Christianity is, believing in Jesus is, because the blood of Jesus is large enough to cleanse every one of their sin. Yet it isn't for everyone in another sense because most people will not come to God admitting their sin. They just won't do it. When you walked in and offered a sacrifice, you were saying something very powerful, not just to the priest in sort of a hidden way, but to all the onlookers and everybody there. <laughs> oh, I blew it. I sinned. <laughs> that is one of the reasons why I am here, either bringing my own animal or purchasing an animal and using that as my sacrifice. You were acknowledging I am indeed guilty. A lot of people have difficulty admitting this. Uh, they're nursing their pride. They're too proud to admit it. They blame their parents for their sin. They excuse their sin as a personality disorder. They relativize their sin by saying it's not as bad as someone else's. They ignore their sin by focusing on other things. They cherish their sin and delight in it. They brag about it. They protect their sin and lash out at anyone who calls them on it. These are just a few ways that we human beings by nature deal with our sin. It's such a horrible thing when God has provided a place where we go and say, yeah, I'm sinful, and thank you that you've given me a substitute who can actually stand in my place and pay for my mess up, for my disobedience. Thank you that you have done that. Instead, a lot of people say, no way. I don't need atonement. I don't really have that much that needs to be atoned for. But a true believer is one who knows that a relationship with God requires that we deal with our sin, that we admit, yes, I am a sinner, I do sin, and I need forgiveness through Jesus. And then one more thing, the altar teaches us that forgiveness and atonement are made by a substitute. So the altar taught, Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. That's what this altar taught. If there's no bloodshed, if there's nothing that died, <laughs> then there is no sin that is forgiven, okay? Okay. 
but sacrifices were made, were made repeatedly, and yet Hebrews 10.4 says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So something had to die. There had to be bloodshed. But we're also told that in the midst of all that shedding of blood and all these sacrifices made daily, year after year, sins were never taken away. The blood of bulls and goats could never do that. So here's the glory and the joy of the new covenant that we live in now. Hebrews 10.11 says, Every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus is the offering. When he cried, it is finished, there was a lot included in there. One of the things, the sacrificial system is completely unnecessary from here going forward. It's all done. Sacrifices are complete. Curtain of the temple is torn. I'm the way in now. Not the blood of animals, but my blood. And so the altar taught the Israelites, I need a substitute to fellowship with God. Either I die on account of my sins, and then I can't have fellowship with God. Or if I want to have fellowship with God, I need to find a substitute, and God has provided us substitutes. And Jesus is the ultimate substitute who dies in our place so we can have fellowship with God. And then finally, one more thing, the place of the altar. Exodus 40 verse 6 says, You shall set the altar of burnt offering, this seven and a half foot by seven and a half foot square with horns on it, four and a half feet tall. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And Exodus 40 verse 29 says, Moses set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. So if you're thinking of a court, you have the tabernacle, and then you've got the court around it, this little wall around it. The first thing you encountered was the altar. The second was the laver of washing that we'll look at, Lord willing, in a, a, a few weeks or months. So the first thing you were confronted with, the first thing that you encountered as you came into this complex was the altar of burnt offering. Each priest and worshiper was confronted with the need for a sacrifice. If you want to have fellowship with God, whether priest, whether worshiper, you need to have a sacrifice before you can enjoy fellowship with him. Lincoln Duncan put it this way, the outer altar, uh, the, the bronze altar, taught the Old Testament believer that communion required atonement. The outer altar taught the Old Testament believer that the only way into communion with God was through sacrifice. This outer altar was the very first thing that a worshiper would see when entering into the tabernacle courtyard. Let me put it this way. Fellowship with God takes place when we are see our sins and the price paid for our sins. Fellowship with God, the first step of it, is seeing our sins and the price paid for our sins. It was the constant reminder for all the Israelites you want to have a relationship with God, great. Deal with your sin. Don't dwell and drown in your sin. Don't dwell and drown in your sin. Deal with it. Own it and accept a substitute for it. Believe in Jesus. Now, I don't want any of us here to become obsessed with our sins or with confessing them as if this was the only thing to consider in the Christian life. But here are three helps for growing in our fellowship with God, and they indeed deal with our sin. The first is this, entrance into fellowship. With, well, let me just back up here just for a moment. 
let's even talk about fellowship. What is it to fellowship with God? Fellowship is being known for who you really are. Fellowship is not a show. It's not one smiley face uh, painted on across from another painted on smiley face. Everybody's smiling and putting on a good show. Fellowship with God entails being known as we really are. That's true fellowship. And we all know this. We know what it is to be loved as we are. That's genuine fellowship. Our hearts go out to that. We enjoy it. It can be hard and difficult. It's also the best spot to be in. And genuine fellowship, uh, where we don't have it, it's a scary place to be open and to actually be known for who you are. So we tend to put on our smiley, happy, uh, righteous faces. But God, beloved, wants fellowship with his people. And one of the prerequisites for fellowshipping with him is we just acknowledge, hey, I'm, I'm sinful. We confess our sin. God loves a repentant heart. He delights in our praises which come to him for forgiving our sins. He's glorified when we own our sins and come clinging to Jesus Christ for forgiveness and hope. So fellowship with God, we have to deal with our sin. We've got to cling to a substitute if we want to grow in our fellowship with another. There's three ways we can do this. or three forms this fellowship might take. There's many more, but here's what I wanted to touch on tonight. In our liturgy that we go through every week, our kind of order of worship, uh, we often have a confession of sin. And during that time, we usually read a portion of God's law. We spend some time thinking about it, admitting about it, sometimes uh, uh, praying about it, and acknowledging to the Lord that we failed. And then we turn to the forgiveness and pardon we have in Christ. And that is so oftentimes a great time of intimate fellowship with God in public, among his people. We're fellowshipping with God because we have been told that he wants us to confess our sins and that he's a God who delights to forgive his people for their sins. And we can enjoy this sweet, intimate fellowship with God right in the midst of his people. The second way we can enjoy fellowship with God by dealing with our sin and clinging to Christ is in the Lord's Supper. Now, each Lord's Supper, the Apostle Paul tells us to do what? Examine ourselves, right? So we have to take an account of how our relationship with the Lord is, how our relationship with other believers is, whether we're living like the Corinthians or like repentant believers, and how we're doing in our life uh, uh, of godliness. We are called to take an account of that. And embedded in the Lord's Supper itself is this great communion with our God. Uh, That's what the Lord's Supper is, great communion and fellowship with God. Embedded in that is the requirement that we take account of our sin. And then after that, we partake of what? The bread and the wine. And what do they symbolize? Jesus broken for us. Jesus' blood shed as the sacrifice which atones for our sins. This is another time, again, in public of great communion and fellowship with God. And then I want to throw in one more personal fellowship with God. So let's take a walk into our prayer closets or our uh, closed off room or (laughs) our big wide open living room when there's not so much chaos or maybe Uh, our living room when there is tons of chaos. Let's take a walk into there. And if we're like most believers, we'll discover that there are times when our spiritual life can be described as dry or distant. I know I've had those times recurringly. takes place sometimes the Christian life is a mountaintop, sometimes a deep valley, sometimes the middle of the road. But usually when a Christian goes through a valley or God feels distant or seems distant, we don't like it. And we will notice it. Our souls will not rest content in that valley. And at such times, we do well to figure out how we are approaching God. And let me ask this question. 
we can ask ourselves this question if we want to. Are we approaching God through the Savior with full acknowledgement of our sin, unburdening ourselves, confessing our sins, clinging to and praising God for the atoning work of His Son in our prayer life and our devotional life? Or are we trying to approach God at those times on the basis of our obedience, saying to God, Lord, I can't believe I did this. What's wrong with me? I'll do better next time. I can do better. Ugh. Which is a great form of spiritual pride. It's a great form of us-centeredness, me-centeredness. And it completely misses that God wants his people to come confessing their sins and receiving atoning work of his son, Jesus' atoning work, not our atoning work. And beloved, that subtle difference there is so often the difference between sweet fellowship with God and a God who feels and seems a continent away from us. One deals with sin by saying, I truly believe I can stop sinning. I have all the power within me to stop sinning and you should accept me because I am trying really hard to stop sinning. That's what one says. And it destroys fellowship with God. The other person deals with sin by saying, I've sinned, Lord, and it's ugly. My sin is ugly. You've made me for righteousness, but I have sinned. I can't atone for it. Please forgive me. Wash over my sin with the blood of your son and cleanse me so I can be washed clean. Thank you for accepting me for your son's sake. Of that is the prayer and the thought of someone who is at the entrance point of great fellowship with God. So how do we view our sin? Do we walk by the altar and say, I can get in on my own. Let me into the most holy place. I don't need to talk about sin and a savior. Or do we even put ourselves on the altar and say, Lord, look at me. We have this great relationship and friendship. Look at how awesome I am. Both of those will destroy our fellowship with God and our communion with him. But the one who says, I've sinned, you are an amazing God that you've provided a substitute for me and Jesus, your son. Thank you. That is some sweet fellowship. Let's pray.